Hi, this is Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show, a podcast that's a part of the TrueNorth.fm podcast network. Thanks for listening or viewing. Today, I'd like to talk about a practice that I think is nearly forgotten and sorely needed in our country, and it's the practice of lamentation. What does it mean to lament? I think we've largely forgotten how to do this. We all know that we live in polarized, turbulent times right now, where it's so easy for anyone to gravitate to the left or the right or to one side or another, and then to engage in kind of, well, combat. Without really seeking understanding of one another, we tend to just try to stake out uh, one another's positions and then uh, go at it and have a fight. Of course, there's a place for debate, but there's also a place for true engagement with things that have been painful and hard. And when we engage in things that are painful and hard, what should we do? Uh, How do we lament? You know, it used to be that even in the Puritan era, when something would go wrong uh, in, you say, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the, the pastors would engage in a kind of lament, and they would sometimes preach a sermon called a Jeremiad, uh, named after Jeremiah, because Jeremiah wrote the book of, well, Lamentations. And even if you read chapter one of Lamentations, you'll find Jeremiah weeping over the state of Jerusalem, over the state of Israel. Um, and he doesn't just confess his sins individually, he acknowledges the corporate sin of all of Israel. When do we do that, and how do we do that properly? Uh, if, you've, if you know the Lord's Prayer, you know that it's uh, a prayer that, well, is in the plural. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us us. We pray. We're taught by Christ to pray corporately. Do we do that? Do, how, how deeply do we actually understand it, those of us who are in the Christian tradition? Well, the Puritans would preach these Jeremiah sermons, which would be sermons of lament, in which the entire congregation, the entire community was called to repentance, grieving, mourning, and seeking after God's mercy. So, This came up to my mind again, most recently reading The Black Intellectual Tradition, uh, a fantastic book uh, written by two African-American professors, Angel Parham, who's a sociologist at UVA, and Anika Prather, who teaches at Howard University. And at the beginning of the book, they talk about the importance of of engaging the painful past of African-Americans in this country and engaging it honestly and truthfully with lamentation. So lamentation is the best way forward when we have to encounter something that is is at least the first response. It may not not be where we stay, but we need to begin with understanding truthfully what has happened. And then when we see that that thing is bitter and hard, uh, there's an appropriate response of lamentation. It's tempting, of course, when we encounter anything that is difficult to downplay that which is bad and emphasize just the good. 
And yet it's also tempt- tempting sometimes to sensationalize that which is evil. Uh, but a truthful engagement looks at something honestly and sees the good and the bad, and where there is something that is is very hard and bad and painful and grievous, we lament. This also is a way of acquiring clear vision. As we encounter, as we see, as we lament, we come to acquire a clearer vision of what has happened and its implications for us. We acquire, therefore, what the classical tradition is called prudence. It's this honest engagement with our history, with all history, that uh, creates a virtue of being able to understand how human beings respond in various circumstances, to know our own nature and the nature of humanity corporately or generally, and then to know what to do. And when we see grievous acts of, of, of great pain, it's a human response to grieve and lament and mourn. But do we give ourselves a space in our own psyches and souls to do this? I think it's a, it's a practice that we need to recover in earnest. So how do we face the painful past without succumbing to cynicism or resentment, we lament. Um, in their book, uh, the Black Intellectual Tradition, Param and Prather, cite a book written by Sung Chan Ra called Prophetic Lament. And he's a Christian writing about the need to recover the biblical practice of lamentation. Someone commenting on this book says that Ra envisions and advocates for the world as God intended it to be. This is at the heart of lamentation. Things aren't as God intends it to be. We see that in various ways, and we have to then reimagine and advocate for what he does envision this world to be. It's another way of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So lamentation in some significant degree, is built right into the Lord's Prayer. Ra writes, Sung Chan Ra, in his book Prophetic Lament, writes that the Western view of sin tends to limit our understanding to the guilt of the individual. There's something about our Western culture, he says, that tends to think of sins and violations as individual, And yet, of course, we've already seen that in the Book of Lamentations, there is a corporate confession. So there's, of course, a place for engaging in our own individual repentance for our individual sins. But forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a place for a corporate understanding of sin and injustice and pain and hurt. We see this in another prayer recorded in scripture. This is Second Ezra. This is Ezra the priest praying. Uh, this is after the Babylonian captivity when the, 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 uh, the Jews were in captivity in, um, in Babylon and then found themselves uh, going, uh, giving, getting permission to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, you know, when they returned, uh, the, the Israelites were quite quite saddened by what they found and quite 
It was, it was a time of mourning and grief to return to the city that had been desolated. And here is Ezra praying. This is chapter 9 of Second Ezra. And I said, O Lord, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, for our iniquities have multiplied above our heads, and our guilt has grown up to heaven. Note the use of the plural. He goes on, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is to this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And he goes on in a a longer prayer to continue to express lament for the sins of the entire nation and to grieve over the difficulties that they've previously experienced and are experiencing even in the present. But note the note of healing in that prayer, that you are, you know, he says, you, the Lord our God has given us a, a measure of grace that we might experience some revival in our bondage. And this is another really important part about lamentation is that it leads to, we move through lamentation. We don't stay in lamentation, but we move through lamentation to healing. It's in lamentation that we're able to open ourselves up to another person's pain, and it can soften our heart and cultivate empathy. That's almost a direct quote from the black intellectual tradition commenting on lamentation. Without lament, it's easy to close ourselves off from those who are experiencing hurt and grief. So it's a way of entering in. It's a way of, of actually becoming a closer friend if there's someone else who is hurting and not ourselves. So this can be the case in reading history. This can be in the case uh, of, of hearing someone report to us some, some terrible difficulty or trial. We enter in through lamentation. We draw close to that person. And in a way that's hard to describe, we begin to bear that person's burdens. We weep with those who weep. So, in their book, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Parham and Prather, uh, show us that in the writings of the Black Intellectual tra- Tradition, we, we will encounter writers who bring us face-to-face with great suffering cl- in a clear-eyed way that helps us to see it and understand it, and then will lead us to lament grieve and mourn. And in a way, therefore, to draw close to that experience, even though maybe we can't draw draw as close to those who've directly experienced it. That's understood. We can still come much, much closer. We can feel and we can grieve with those who weep and grieve. So it's a way of acquiring, acquiring again, prudence, the ability to understand, to see, to perceive, but also to help bear the burdens of others. So there's no abandonment in lamentation to grief. We don't. We are not stuck there. We move through. I mean, this is what we see in the black intellectual tradition generally. So many of these writers, such as Frederick Douglass, say, 
or Uluda Equiano, were people of faith who moved beyond lamentation, just as we would see that in Ezra, just as we'd see this in Jeremiah, just as we'd see this in the Puritans preaching their Jeremiads. They moved through lamentations to faith, hope, and love. Uh, this is this is one of the great, great untold stories, I think, of the black intellectual tradition and of African-American suffering in the United States, is that so many of the great African-American leaders, having experienced slavery, dif- persecution, difficulty, discrimination, even after emancipation, were able through their faith to move through lamentation and offer hope to themselves and to everyone else. In other words, they did not fall prey. They did not succumb to bitterness. And so you see this in some of the great writers like Douglas. And were they upset? Was there righteous anger? Yes. But they didn't stay in a state of lamentation, nor did they fall into the pit of despair, resentment, and bitterness. You see this in Martin Luther King Jr. as well, and many, many others. And it's all traced for you in this uh, great book, The Black Intellectual Tradition. Here is just a quotation from the freed slave, uh, Olada Equiano, uh, in his uh, interesting narrative of his life as a slave. He writes this. He's describing his encounter of seeing his first glimpse of slavery in the island of of Barbados. And when he saw a slave trade, a slave sale, this is what he wrote. Note his tone. Note that he does not fall prey to bitterness. And note what he is calling us to do and what he's calling himself to do. On a signal given, the buyers rush at once into the yard where the slaves are confined and make choice of that parcel they like best. The noise and clamor with which this is attended and the eagerness visible in the countenance of the buyers serve not a little to increase the apprehension of the terrified Africans. In this manner, without scruple, are relations and friends separated, most of them never to see each other again. Note his clear-eyed presentation of this very harsh truth. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, Lear- learned you this from your God who says unto you, do unto all men as you would men do unto you? Is it not enough that we are torn from our country and friends to toil for your luxury and lust of gain? Must every tender feeling be likewise sacrificed to your avarice? Surely this is a new refinement in cruelty which while it has no advantage to atone for it, thus aggravates distress and adds fresh horrors even to the wretchedness of slavery. So a clear-eyed presentation of the horror of slavery, along with a call to Christians, Equiano himself being a Christian, to live up to the standards of what the faith calls us to as Christians. Douglas does the same thing. We see this in Phyllis Wheatley. We see it in Anna Julia Cooper and many other writers. This call through faith to come, to live it out in this way, and to, uh, 
and to dispense with what is a contradiction, a deep contradiction to what Christians profess. In fact, it is African Americans who were enslaved and came to the faith who were the most powerful ones to call Christians to see how to properly interpret the scriptures when it came to the issue of slavery. Because yes, there were distortions made by many Christians trying to justify slavery based on a few proof texts that were misunderstood, misinterpreted. But the African Americans who knew the scriptures, knew of the story of the exodus of the Hebrews being slaves for 400 years and then freed and then taken into the promised land to experience God's blessing and mercy and to be delivered from such bondage, understood from those stories of the Old Testament that the New Testament could, simply could not teach that Christians should be enslaved or that any should be enslaved. There's a difference between someone being captured as a prisoner of war and someone being enslaved simply based on a kidnapping and their race. So the African-Americans who suffered were able to call other Christians as they suffered, but without uh, being entrenched in bitterness. They were able to call Christians to live out the faith that calls us to treat one another's even as we would be treated ourselves and to see that we are all to be delivered from bondage both physically and spiritually. So you see Martin Luther King Jr., for example, in his call to nonviolent protests saying that we need to love our enemy and treat even our enemies as we would want to be treated. He saw this as the best way forward because if otherwise to engage in violent protests of and overcoming power with power would only lead to an endless cycle of oppression and power mongering. I could go on and on. I encourage you to read the black intellectual tradition in this regard. But note that what we see here is a gift. And I'll close with an illustration from Frederick Douglass. Douglass, who was enslaved as a boy, but then was able to learn through a very, very various difficult circumstances how to read, had to teach himself to read. He overheard his master at one point saying to the mistress, if you teach Douglas to read, he will unfit himself as a slave. And that was all Douglas needed to hear, to know that he could fit himself as a free person by reading. And so he found a way through many difficulties to learn to read and became, by the time he was 27 and wrote his narrative, a great writer having no formal education, as so many others around him did. And by the time he he writes his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, he is a master orator. And he, seeing uh, Christians who had were engaged in slavery in the South, said, this is fraudulent. This is a fraudulent Christianity that would uh, encourage and condone and approve this kind of slavery. Ah, but if it's fraudulent, it means that there is true Christianity, that this was, this was a distortion. There must be the truth. And of course, he met even in the South, many who knew it was a distortion were working against it. All of this should lead us to lamentation. To know that this happened is hard. And any of us as students at first when we encounter this or later as adults, to know that these things happened is a hard thing to face. We can't ignore it, and we can't sensationalize the evil 
or overemphasize the good, we have to face it clearly and acquire prudence and then lament and then heal. And that's one of the great callings of what we see in the black intellectual tradition and in this book by Parham and Prather. I encourage you to read it. And I encourage you to read Second Ezra and Lamentations and the Lord's Prayer and think through how you might engage in a kind of corporate lamentation as we're called to do at times, as well as repenting individually for our particular sins. Well, thank you for viewing and watching. This is Christopher Perrin with The Christopher Perrin Show. I hope to be with you next time with some additional conversation that will come forth from this book, The Black Intellectual Tradition. Thanks so much.